This hour of Canuck Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. Always love hearing from our listeners. Those who are listening live, text in 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line. Marty the Red, I'm sorry, but anyone suggesting that Boudreaux was a done deal because he had a good half season wants to start is liked by the fans and the fear that not bringing him back would be PR, etc., is missing the fact that it's not up to him. This management should not be bending to the pressure. I'd be okay with him coming back, but I would totally understand if they chose not to. The outside pressure was how Green got hired, and in hindsight, we all know changes, including coaching, should have happened in the offseason. That's from Marty the Red. Uh, my guy, Marty, had, makes a terrific point. It, they shouldn't bring him back unless they really believe that's what they should do. Uh, we can question that move. And we can talk about how we would do something different and, and let it play out and all those sort of things. That's fine. And, hey, taking heat from fans and media for making unpopular decisions is your job as a general manager and as a president. You shouldn't be making moves to make people happy. You should make moves that make the team better now and long term. Those are are your chief responsibilities when you run a hockey team and obviously running the business side of it too. But I think he makes a great point. You shouldn't be hiring him because of what fans and media are saying. It should be because you believe this is the guy. I would say about the Travis stuff going back, if it was up to Jim, they would have had Travis signed well before they even got to the end of last season. Like, I don't think that was a management thing. Again, last season was really what ownership wanted to do. And it was really on ownership to clean the slate if they wanted to, because management wanted to bring Travis back the whole time. It wasn't like, you know, they were being forced to bring him back or the media talked him into it. You can talk about ownership. If anything, media and fan pressure was saying, fire everybody <laughs> at the end of last season. It wasn't about bringing everybody back, but it was a lot of support for Travis because he was in the final year of his contract, all the things that happened and, and all those sort of issues kind of happening. He was a guy that was very much seen as a sympathetic figure. But the decision to bring Travis back, manager wanted to do that all along. That came down to ownership. But I do agree, though, with his overall point there, Dan. If they want to bring Boudreaux back, it should be for the right reasons, not because you're worried about a PR hit. I I, I just simply think don't overthink it. Like Clearly, the players yes. have taken to this guy. They've had a lot of good results, and uh, he's also proven, right? They showed the graphic on uh, last Friday. The only coach with a better win percentage in NHL regular season history is Scotty Bowman. I think the league yeah. was overthinking having Boudreaux on the sidelines for so long. You know, he didn't exactly have the best roster around with Minnesota and still managed to get pretty good results in his years there until the end. But like this guy's proven to to be able to get results. I know it hasn't yeah. happened in the playoffs for him, but he's proven to get results. He is. I mean, so there are there is there is a logical way for you to make an argument to hire somebody else. And again, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying you should, but you can't. You're just craft. exploring the idea, the theory of it. Yes. OK. And it's not even me playing devil's advocate, but it's like, OK, I find it's very instructive in any situation to think of what the other argument is. What's the best argument? Not just any argument. What is the best argument against what you want to do? One you have to actually stop and think about for a moment, because I think that makes you think that forces you to expand your horizon, so to speak, and think of possibilities and think of issues you hadn't thought about before. So I think it's really healthy to do this exercise. The, the two things, number one. Number one, though, for me, if you want to craft an argument against Bruce Boudreaux, and I don't want this to be taken in the wrong way, but he's a guy who's very much kind of laissez-faire to some degree, and he's not a guy who's not prepared. Don't get me wrong in this sense, but against a coach that might be a bit more kind, I wouldn't say corporate, but a bit more organized, wouldn't come off necessarily as sloppy at times. And that's not something that you should hold against them. But if you want to talk about certain preparedness, once you get into the postseason, you're making sure you're on top of every single thing you have to be on top of. Does that get in your way once you get to those critical moments? And is that ultimately what holds him back? And if you think so, then you can make the argument against them. Now, 
The other side of it, too, kind of comes down to just overall philosophies with how a team should play and what you should look like in the new age. And if you don't think this guy hits those markers because you have a different idea about how the team wants to play and what they want to be all about, then you have to make that switch because it doesn't really align with you. So to me, those two things will be the best arguments against them. Not necessarily his age, necessarily those things, but is there a degree of disorganization in how he conducts business to some degree that catches up with them come postseason? And is that going to be a ceiling we're going to be hitting up against very soon because we believe in our core? And the second part being, is his philosophy for how to play hockey not quite what we want to be as a team? It is uh, Canuck Central, Dan Riccio, and Satyar Shaw. So in the first hour, we talked about a lot of different things, went through the main priorities, the first orders of business that management group has to start getting to with this club. Also, um, the idea of Bruce Boudreaux saying this team is just a few tweaks away, plus Frank Valley. So if you missed it, check it out on the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. But we also wanted to focus on where there can be some internal improvement from this roster. You know, if, if you want to believe in this team, then you have to believe that there are young players that will take a step in their careers towards helping lift this team towards becoming a playoff team year in and year out. And one of those players we've had circled is Brock Besser. Yesterday, we got a glimpse into the difficulties Brock has been dealing with away from the ice, away from his professional life. And there are many of us, including myself, that can sympathize and empathize with Brock and the situation he is going through. Um, and it makes you wonder if, well, blatantly, Sat, should we look at Brock Besser's season differently after what we learned he's been dealing with yesterday? To some degree, I mean, so this is not, nothing that we did not know to some degree that, yes. you know, there's a lot going on with him that we understood, but at the same time as respecting privacy, we don't talk about these sort of things. And part of the reason why oftentimes, you know, the criticism maybe wouldn't be quite as, you know, pointed with Besser would be that, you know, there was an understanding of stuff kind of going on. So I think in the back of our minds as media and people kind of are close to things, we kept that somewhere in our consciousness that was kind of there, but but when you see kind of the gravity of it in the moment, I think it does just kind of hammer that point home that at times this year, it was a real struggle for him. And those things, you can look at two ways. One way you can say, hey, that's part of life. And every year there could be something that happens and you have to learn how to deal with those sort of things. And to some degree, that's true. But some situations are obviously a lot harder to deal with than others. And the other one is, you know what? We're talking about human beings. I don't care how good an athlete you are and how great you are at, at your job. Certain things can happen in life that impact your performance. And it happens to every single person in the world to some degree at some point. So nobody's perfect. You're going to have times that are more challenging than others. And you will overcome those things and be better for it long term. And I really kind of fall into the latter part of that. And I'd say with everything we've seen and how... And you talked about this a lot, Dan, where you saw him last season be as good as he was. So if he's that good, he has that in his ability, that didn't just escape from him. So what was the reason why his game was so far away from that peak this season? Well, even though it doesn't explain everything, it certainly is a big part of it. So I do believe we have to take that into consideration. And I think what it does to some degree is give you a bit more optimism about him bouncing back next season. There is... Um an incredibly talented hockey player there with Brock Besser. Mm -hmm. And for a player who we all agree, and he himself admitted yesterday, uh, was a very difficult year, you know, still ends up with 23 goals, 23 assists, 46 points. I mean, you take that from a lot of players in a down year. His even strength numbers, as we've talked about on previous shows, not where they need to be in order for him to really be a big piece of this roster and live up to the expectations or live up to the talent that he has as a player. But it's impossible not to watch that yesterday and understand that it had an effect 
on his performance this season. So I understand Brock. You know, there are elements of his game that are frustrating. You know, we talk about him um, dipping in and out or, you know, from really like being noticeable in games and he can kind of get invincible at times in games. And, and those things happen for a lot of goal scorers. Because even if uh, you, you project as a 30-goal guy, you know, you're not scoring for more than half the games probably, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So you know, it's natural that you are going to get lost a little bit at times when you are a streaky player and that is a streaky goal scorer. But Brock can be, and and I've said this a thousand times, Sat, but he is a better player away from the puck and defensively than most people give him credit for. He's great winning his board battles, great winning his puck battles, can play a little bit heavy at times. There's a lot to Brock Besser's game that people don't necessarily appreciate enough. But that those were the areas I think he lacked at times this year, and it's part of the reason his production was down from where we would have expected it to be. And those sort of things, when we go through that and, and everything you just kind of mentioned, it gives you a background as to why his game wasn't where it needed to be and how you can get it back again next year. And I'd also kind of look at this and say, take another, let's kind of evolve this to the monetary side of things. How likely is it that, that Brock Bester is able to sign a long-term deal this offseason with the Canucks? How likely a long-term deal? Or unlikely, I should say. Yeah, I, I think it's very unlikely uh, a long-term deal is in place for Brock Besser. So we're looking at anywhere from one to a three-year contract, yeah. maybe even two years, walking to free agency. Mm-hmm. This is a pivotal moment for him to not only decide what type of player he wants to be, but also establishing what type of player he is. And he's made a lot of money. And uh, and sometimes we have these discussions and then there are people like, you know, just, just you know, struggling and, and working their ass off every day. And you're not even getting close to 100K or whatever it is. And, and, you know, we're sitting here talking about millions. So I understand, like, this doesn't always resonate. But they live in a different world. It's a different stratosphere. And you have different opportunities. He has a chance, one more chance, to sign a massive contract. So far, he's had... Two ELC years, one he burned off pretty quickly with joining at the end of the season. He's had a three-year contract at about $6 million per year, 5.875 roughly for three years. That's good money. He's signing a two- or three-year contract. That's also good money. But he hasn't signed that contract that's going to set him up for the rest of his life in a massive big way. He has one more chance at doing so. You're getting to the age 25. This is a time when you really got to put it down and become the player you want to be and establish that. And... Are you willing to bank on him being able to do that the next couple of years? Because if I don't find a good offer, and I'm talking about a legitimate trade offer, I feel pretty confident in making that bet on him. This goes back to something we talked about for a few weeks or a few months now. Which player is the most likely to overperform his contract? Outperform his contract. Yeah, It's probably not going to be JT Miller and whatever he signs, unless he signs a massively team-friendly number. He might be worth it. Right? It might be worth $8 million even. But you're not going to give surplus value on $8 million. Same with Bo, whatever he signs, if it's close to 7 or whatever. But if Brock signs for 6 that dude at some point is outperforming that number, whether it's next season or the year afterwards. He, you know, he can be a 70-point guy in the league. And you'll take a $6 million player for a 70-point guy every day of the week. One of the big developments of the end of season for me was that Brock and and Petey started finding their chemistry together again. Now it just so happens that they were just both playing better than they were earlier in the season. So that definitely helps, but that is a big development for the team and for projecting Brock into the future, right? Because you, you need him to and, and I think they accentuate each other very well and uh, accentuate and, and really bring out the best of each other's qualities. Pedersen could be a playmaker, but also a finisher, and obviously Brock can do some of that too, but really focus in on just getting into the right areas and finishing his chances. So that was big. And 
when you think about which players can really take a step next season, you just outlined why Brock, whatever he ends up signing for, and we like I expect him to be a Vancouver Canuck next year because there's just too many variables that don't make a ton of sense towards Brock being in another market right now. But he's going to have a lot of motivation to make good on whatever contract he signs and then is able to really hit the jackpot in two or three years from now in free agency. But what other players can we look at and say they can take a step next year? And I wonder if the biggest and most important one is the most talented forward on this team, Elias Pettersson. Man, so I think for Elias Pettersson, there is an absolute massive next level available for him to get to. And I think him playing alongside Brock Besser the next couple of years, if that's going to be the duo that they play together with, I mean, if you're Brock, you're sitting there and you're talking to EP and saying, listen, I'm probably going to sign a two-year deal. You got a two-year deal. <laughs> what are we going to do the next couple of years here to like really put our value up to get this massive deal? Maybe we won't be on the same team or whatever, but because I, I see Pedersen next year, Dan, being able to take that big leap we've been waiting for because we haven't seen that yet from him. That big leap, I think it's becoming a bit more like maybe scoring around a 90-point pace, 95-point pace for an entire season, which we haven't seen him do yet. Um, well, that, and I think I think 40 goals, is that outside of the outside of the realm of possibility here? Like, is that taking a step? If he's, let's say, you know, 90-point guy with 40 goals and he's playing on the PK. To me, if he's as getting better defensively, he gets 40, that's a big number. And I'm not betting against him next year to get 40. Is he playing with Connor Garland the whole year? He might. The most exciting <laughs> player on the team. The best playmaker Setting on the him team. Up the, the best playmaker on the team. The best five-on-five producer on the team. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Well, second best five-on-five producer on the team, just behind JT Miller. Uh, but assist-wise, he he led the team in five-on-five assists. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll you know tote that stat till the, the cows come home. It's um, I, I don't think we've really thought of Pedersen that way, but... Look at the rate he was scoring goals at after the All-Star break. He found his shot again, but and it wasn't just a confidence thing, but he was getting into spots that his shot will eventually go in, right? And the thing about Pedersen, which makes him and you know has him stand out as a scorer around the league, is he can score from distance. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of guys do that. I know you think your favorite player scores from distance, but we all know, like, where do most hockey goals come from? From below the hash mark, in and around the blue paint, right? Elias Pettersson consistently scores from distance, whether it's on the power play with his one-timer or... You know, that goal we saw in Calgary, I know it was uh, kind of a nothing game at that point, and they were getting blown out a little bit, but how many guys score with a wrister from the top of the circles and make a, a goalie look completely mm -hmm. foolish while he's going bar down? I mean, goalies just don't have an easy time reading Elias Pettersson's shot. And the best goal scorers in the league, especially the young ones, uh, who are they? Austin Matthews. When Patrick Laine's going, he scores from distance quite a bit. Obviously, Ovechkin has done it for so many years. Now, is Petey going to score like those guys? Is he going to have a 50-60 goal season? Uh, probably not. But I do think 40 goals shouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for, for Elias Pettersson. No, it shouldn't be at all. And if he gets to 40 goals and we're talking about taking that next step, once his contract's up, we're talking about a long-term deal at 10 plus million. But those are the things you have to do if you're going to get a contract worth 10 plus million. For Brock Besser to finally sign that contract, that's going to be a long-term deal for him. That's not a two or three-year contract. 
he's going to have to put up a big year for that to happen. Like for him to make, you know, to sign that meaningful deal, that's going to be 50 to 60 million. Those are the types of contracts that set you up for the rest of your life and all that sort of stuff. That's what you have to do for Brock to get there. He's got to hit 30 goals consistently. He's got to hit, have like a couple 30 goal years and have a 70 point season and be the two way player. He is. If he does that, that's even close to 40 or whatever. This is a guy who's going to sign a contract worth 8 million. Potentially, we're talking about 50 to 60 million total money. And hey, just be a bit more consistent. Maybe you get 45 million in total money. But right now, he's a guy that's looking at five to six million per season on a shorter term deal. So money to me is a massive motivator for a lot of these athletes. And we don't talk about that enough. And I wonder how much of that's also going to be a part of the offseason Brock has, but also for, for PD. PD talks about wanting to be one of the best players in the world. Well, for you to get that contract, you got to put those seasons together. And that's the type of year he's got to put put forth 40 goals or more or take that next leap. Then, even if you pay that guy 10 million plus, you feel good about doing so. The other players I think are integral for the Canucks to have take a step next year. It's the other two young forwards. Uh, Vasily Podkolzin, what a rookie year he had, especially towards the end. But Nils Hoaglander... If he's here next year, Sat, he's kind of a sneaky, like super interesting piece because he can be potentially one of those really valuable middle six forwards that can, you know, help your possession numbers lower down in the roster. Well, yeah, I mean, see, the, the thing, too overall when i look at possession as well and this is where it's going to be interesting the next year or two where we see where those other metrics come in because there is going to be another stage where we get the puck tracking data we have right now gives us some sort of an idea but it's also very raw right because we look at it we're like it's very raw we're not quite sure what this means but there's gonna be another evolution to it that gives you a better indicator of what you're actually doing so when we look at those underlying the possession metrics and all that sort of stuff for for pd they weren't quite where they had been in the past but it kind of comes down to what are you also doing before your shot so it's also going to be really fascinating to see it's kind of like in the nfl right now like even the, as much as the combine is something that they all look at gps tracking is something that teams have proprietary data for that they use to track games to give them a better indication of how players you know play in the moment in, in game situations and how that speed translates and i also think that some of those things will come out for the nhl in the next little while and believe me when I look at a guy like Pedersen, some of those things are going to shine an even brighter light on him. Because when you go watch Pedersen, especially from that you know press box view up top, you see the whole ice. You watch him game in and game out when he's on top of his game. There are a lot of things he does that does not show up on the stat sheet. And if you're able to find those things, then yeah, that value that he's going to be able to argue for himself will be far higher. Uh, it is uh, Canucks Central. Uh, coming up, we're going to dive into the Calgary series a little bit more with Haley Salvian of The Athletic. Up next, a dive into the Calgary Flames series with the Dallas Stars on Canucks Central. This hour of Canuck Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company, helping local business since 1892. We'll uh, have a little bit of fun later, um, hopefully before the end of this segment, giving out some uh, NHL awards. The uh, ballot is an interesting one this year. There's a lot of different ways you could go for the Hart Trophy. The Jack Adams is always one that I find fascinating. I think the Vesna is pretty self-explanatory. And the Calder Trophy, I think, is also really only one option for me. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss some of those a little bit later. I'm, I'm wondering if you, you feel the same way, Sad. I'm curious to find that out. Man, so I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't quite I don't, I don't quite feel the same way you do about it to be quite honest really okay all right we'll see how uh we'll see how that shakes out you can always uh send in a thought 650 650 on the Dunbar lumber text line for those that are listening live here on Canuck Central after six o'clock Don Taylor will be joining us and tonight on sportsnet 650 the 
Vancouver Giants are looking to become the first eight seed to beat a one seed in the WHL playoffs. It's been a wild series, um, and they've got a 3-2 lead on Everett. They'll try to put it away tonight at the LEC. Pre-game is coming up at 6.30 on Sportsnet 6.50. Uh, tomorrow, the Calgary Flames will get their series started against the Dallas Stars sat and you know we talked a little bit about Calgary and their series and just how much pressure there could be on this Flames team given some of the uncertainties going into the offseason let's bring in our next guest friend of the show Haley Salvian of The Athletic covering the Calgary Flames thanks for this Haley how are you Hey, good. Thanks. How are you guys? Uh, we're we're doing awesome. Uh, we had uh, Frank Saravalli on earlier in the show, and we were kind of discussing: Are the Flames sneakily the Canadian team with the most pressure on them, given some of the uh, big contracts they may have to sign come this off season? It's a good question. I don't even know if pressure is the right word. Like, I think there is pressure on Calgary in maybe a dark horse way because. If you don't have playoff success, you know, then, you know, are there players who are going to change their mind about the long-term viability of being a Calgary Flame, um, either in Johnny Gaudreau, who's UFA, or even someone like Matthew Kachuk, or Andrew Mangiapane, who are only one year away from UFA status? Are those guys going to want to lock in long-term if they don't see, you know, a successful future in Calgary, if they can't, you know, get something done this year? Sure, but, I mean, I do think you look at, a core like Toronto and I have the game on right now and they're up one, nothing, but you know, that's a group that has a lot of pressure on them. Um, you know, a lot of the narrative around that team is if they can't get it done this year, who's going to move out of that core. Um, you know, there's pressure on Edmonton too. You know, <laughs> they have two of the best players in the world and they, they haven't, you know, achieved, they've achieved about as much as Calgary and Toronto have in the last couple of years in the postseason. So I don't know if it's fair to say Calgary has the most pressure, um, of Canadian teams, but I think they just have that pressure in different ways. I, but I think you look at all three of those teams and Toronto and Calgary for sure are two of those teams that you think that if they can't, you know, get anything significant done in the postseason, there's going to be significant changes to those rosters. Well, and one thing that I find interesting though is as far as the pressure is concerned with Calgary, Brad Trey Living heading into this season may have been the GM with the most pressure on him, but with how the team has performed, no matter what happens in the playoffs, has his seat been, is it almost more secure than it's ever been with how things have gone? I don't, you know what, again, I don't know. I do think that, you know, you look at the summer and Brad Trey Living could have traded Johnny Gaudreau um, for pennies on the dollar in the offseason. You know, he could have made changes just for the sake of it. And he went the, you know, un, he went the path that not a lot of people would have hoped for. He didn't make those big sweeping changes that the fan base and even some media members have been calling for. Um, you know, I think there are still some people who probably say, you know, he should have traded, traded Sean Monaghan for pennies on the dollar for cap space reasons. Um, but for better or worse, Bradshaw Living did not make any of those, you know, shape shifting moves. Instead, he opted for guys with, veteran leadership, um, Stanley Cup experience, guys who I think if things go right for the Flames, we're probably going to be hearing quite a lot about in, in the coming weeks. You know, the Blake Coleman's, um, honestly, guys like Trevor Lewis, Tyler Toffoli, Kelly Arncroke went to Stanley Cup final a couple of years ago with Nashville. There's guys with legitimate recent playoff experience on the Calgary Flames now and I think that's both a combination of what Daryl Sutter wanted and believed the team needed and Bradshaw Living going out and doing it um, does that mean his seat is completely safe um, that's always a really difficult question to answer I think it depends on what happens in the next couple weeks here if this is another first round exit um, is the ownership group in Calgary going to say maybe we need a fresh perspective or are they going to say you know what we won the Pacific it was a great year. We got bounced in a really good series. No one's fault. <laughs> Let's try this again. I really don't know what that mindset's going to be like. However, I do think, you know, Sutter deserves most of the credit for turning this group around because it's the ways in which they've been playing that's made them successful. But I think the personnel is a big part of that too. And I think Brad Tree Living has helped in a major way. Well, as uh, some of our listeners will point out, about one half of the current Flames roster uh, are former Vancouver so Canucks. Sorry. It's okay. It happens all the time. Scared me. 
ahead. My window's open. It's a beautiful day, and the ambulance came out of nowhere. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's all good. So about one half of the Flames roster used to be on the uh, on the Vancouver Canucks. So uh, any success the Flames have will certainly come down to the likes of uh, Jacob Markstrom and and Chris Tanev and Tyler Toffoli. But kidding aside, um, you know what have Tanev and Markstrom brought to this Flames team? Oh, well, you know, we were talking to Dallas coach Rick Bonus today, and one of the questions that was asked of him, and it's been a big talking point in this market, is, you know, what's the difference between these Flames and the 2019-20 Flames from the bubble who lost against the Stars in the first round? And Rick Bonus said, you know, this Calgary team is much better, and it starts with the goalie. Like, it starts with Jacob Markstrom. Going out and getting him two years ago is a major reason why the Calgary Flames have had the success they've had this season. And I think that's true. You know, the team decided we're going to build from the, we're going to improve. on. I believe we lost. You know, I think those are, he's had three career best numbers. He, I was surprised actually, he'd never had a nine twenty save percentage career um, at the end of a season. He had a nine twenty two is, you know, 2.22 goals against the average and his nine shutouts are career high metrics for Markstrom as well. He's having a great season. He's, you know, if you ask the players on that team, he's been their MVP. Uh, Chris Tanev today said he's, you know, if not the best, he's, you know, second or third best goalie in the NHL. So you really can't speak highly enough about the value that Jacob Markstrom's added to this roster. Um, and I think Chris Tanev's somebody who still kind of continues to fly under the radar. Um, you know, this is a player who I think if you were to, you know, ask a bunch of people, you know, if you've got to build your blue line, or who's the steadiest guy you want in your team? I, I think Tanev comes up a lot. I think you guys and people in Vancouver can speak to the kind of unassuming ways in which he adds value to the team. It, they aren't the flashy things. He's not breaking into the zone, going end to end like Kale McCarr, Roman Yossi, but, you know, his stick's always in the right spot and he's never out of position and he can angle guys into the corner. He can win board battles. Um, he makes his D partners better. Um, those aren't flashy highlight real things, but those are things that are really important for a team, especially a Calgary team that plays with a lot of defensive structure and likes to play with the puck and likes to limit not just chances, but high danger chances against. So those two guys have been really, really important to what the flames are doing, but especially in terms of making their back end stronger and more reliable. Well, and, you know, I, and then when you look at that back end with how they've played, and one guy that's really taken a step this season is Oliver Shillington. And, you know, we talk so much uh, on our show about how the Canucks can get better. And, yeah, you can make trades and all that sort of stuff, but you also kind of need to have some players come up through the ranks are really hit big. Manji Apane has done that mm -hmm. up front, of course. But how big of a re revelation has Oliver Shillington been for this team? Oh, it's been huge. I mean, he was... He cleared waivers last year, right? Um, this is a player who cleared waivers. The Seattle Kraken passed on him in the expansion draft because he was exposed in the expansion draft. This was, you know, a guy who wasn't really like an unknown commodity. He was just somebody who people didn't really, you know, I think people just thought, you know, this, he's maybe a tweener. Um, you know, maybe he's a really, he's like too good for the American League, but not good enough. Um, for the NHL, especially when you look at his skill set and you assume that he's better suited for a top four rather than a third pair when, when a lot of teams are going for the big guys who can box out. Um, so I think Shillington was somebody who people didn't really know what he was. I guess he was an unknown commodity. Um, but he's been really big. I think when you go through Stanley Cup checklists and, and what people believe teams need, to be successful in the postseason, um, you know, I think having somebody like Shillington, you who only makes seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars against the cap, you know, the performance he brings and the value he brings compared to his cap hit is really important. I think a lot of teams who have success have guys on you know league minimum or entry level contracts who are performing and providing value to the team, and that's a, a really important part of of building a not just a contender, but a winner in the cap era. So Johnny Gaudreau, I mean, this is such a, a big playoff series for him. You know, he, he's going to be on heart ballots and deservedly so, but 
you know, there is that narrative that uh, will continue following him around if if he doesn't get it done this series. How do you look at Johnny Gaudreau going into this playoff? Yeah, I think that's a narrative that, you know, it, you know, you just look at what he's done the last couple playoffs and, and it hasn't been a whole lot. I mean, he had one assist in, in the last playoff round. And, um, you know, I think he only has a couple primary points in his last last couple playoff rounds. So, you know, you look at the numbers of him or guys like Mitch Marner and you start to wonder, are these guys good enough to play in the playoffs with heavy hockey, quote unquote, getting to them? Um, but I think, I just think this is a different Johnny Gaudreau this year. I think the same way that this is a different Calgary Flames team. Um, Daryl Sutter called Johnny the best checker on the team a couple of weeks ago. Um, and he kind of explained that as, you know, the way you check when you're not, you know, 200 pounds or six foot six is, you know, being smart and aware on the ice and, and being in the right spots and having your sticks in the right lanes and making good choices with the puck. And, you know, Matthew Kachuk called him the team's best defender because he never has to play defense because he just always has the puck on a stick and you don't have to play defense when you're in the offensive zone the whole time. And that's something that we've seen from Johnny Gaudreau this year. Um, he is a more complete player because when he does have to play, in the defensive zone, he is a lot better. Um, the Flames aren't really losing games on his stick this year, um, which we couldn't really say in years previous when, you know, he ended up underperforming in the postseason. So I think there's reason to be cautiously optimistic about Johnny Gaudreau in the postseason this year because this is, you know, a more complete, improved Johnny. He's a better defensive player. He's a better complete player. He's much better at five-on-five. Five. He had, you know, one of the best five-on-five five seasons in the last what, 30 years, two decades since Yarmir Yager. So this is this is a much better player on a much better team with a better coach and a better centerman, too. We have to remember he's going to be on the top line with Elias Lindholm, who is not Sean Monaghan. He is a better 200-foot player than Monaghan, I think that's something that's going to help Johnny. But certainly if, if he doesn't perform in the he's going to continue to follow in the same way it would with any player who's underperformed when it matters the most. Well, and you know you're right about uh, about Goudreau, and we'll see what happens here in the postseason. Because yeah, you look at the numbers in the playoffs with 19 points in in, in 30 playoff games so far. Matthew Kachuk only has five points in 15 playoff games, but based on how he's played mm-hmm. this season, I don't think anybody's really betting against him putting up points mm-hmm. because not only is it his playmaking ability, which is you know maybe his biggest strength, despite the fact that he has all those other strengths to his game, but do we talk enough about how good of an all-around year he's had in terms of defensive impact, physicality, goal scoring, playmaking? I mean, it seems like there is nothing he hasn't done well this season. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, you know, I was um, doing our power rankings um, the last couple of weeks with, um, you know, Sean Gentili with Dom Luce out um, for the last couple of weeks. So they kind of tagged me in and one of the, one of the little themes we had um I guess two weeks ago was like most underappreciated player and I was like should I say it's Maddie Kachuk because I don't know if we've been talking about everything that we've been doing but it's it's hard to call somebody who has you know 40 goal 42 goals and what 105 108 points underappreciated but there are a lot of elements to Matthew Kachuk's game this season um that he's really put on display and I think it's just I think a lot of people knew that this was the kind of player he was. I think people maybe got away from that idea because he'd had such a down year last year. Um, but this is what Matthew Kachuk is. It's that blend of skills that makes him such a special unicorn player in this league. He plays with a physical edge. He has that drag your team into the battle element. He can make plays. You know, he's put his vision and playmaking on display this season in a way that we hadn't really seen, especially, you know, given he's passing the puck to two guys who can put it in the back of the net, but we've seen his goal scoring ability. Um, you know, his play in front of the net is something you can't teach. Um, you know, he's been good in the D zone as well. He's been good in all three zones. So I think this is, you know, not to kind of steal what I said about Johnny, but this is, this is a complete player in Matthew Kachuk, but again, it's, it's, it's that really unique blend of skill sets that makes him such a special player because he's someone who can do it all. And, you know, he doesn't have the postseason numbers to, you know, to, to show off yet in his career. I, I do think um, when he got hurt in that Dallas series, you did notice a bit of the, 
maybe a emotion and, and heart kind of lacking from that team when he left the Dallas series, I guess, in midway through game two in 2019-20. So, you know, he didn't maybe show up on the stat sheet in the first or second game there, but he's certainly a valuable player for the Flames. And I think a thing for him this year, too, is, you know, he's still doing the rough stuff. He can still, you know, annoy players. Anyone else can in this league. He's still very um, pesty but you're seeing a bit less of the after the whistle stuff. And, and when he does do it, um, it's not maybe as reckless as people would have said it was in the past. So again, um, I'm a big fan of his game. I, I think, you know, again, he's just, he's just so unique and he can do it all in, in all three zones for you. And, and, you know, hopefully you see that translate to the playoffs for the flames because he's going to be an important piece of it for sure. Uh, final thing. You know, I, I, I figure we know how Dallas wants to play in this series, but they're going to try and muck it up and, and frustrate that that top line. If if that does happen, if they do get mm-hmm. slowed down, um, does Calgary have enough to uh, to beat Dallas in other areas? Yeah, you know what? I think it's going to be really interesting, and this is something that I was just talking about before we got on the phone. Because I'm looking at you know the Flames' roadmap to beating the Dallas Stars, and and I think the unique thing is is both sides need to plan for how to defend against or neutralize one of the most productive lines in the league that hence Jason Robertson and Joe Pavelski line has been one of the most productive in the league. Um, I think third in terms of five on five production behind the Lindholm line in Calgary and then the Matthews bunting Marner line in Toronto. So both sides kind of have to game plan for, for how to deal with each other and um, knowing the way that the flames, are structured. They like to shut down other lines by keeping the puck, keeping possession of the puck, excuse me, and staying in the offensive zone, making those top lines play defense. And talking to Rick Bonus today, he kind of said the exact same thing. They want to limit the chances that the Lynn home line gets by making them play defense and having the puck um, themselves. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how both teams are able to successfully or not um, shut down those top lines. But I think where Calgary has the edge is within their middle six. Um, you know, their second line is with Andrew Mangiapane, who had 35 goals this year, Michael Backlund down the middle, and Tyler Toffoli on the right wing. You guys are familiar with Toffoli. You know, he was very good in the postseason all the way to the cup final last year. He won a cup with Daryl Sutter in L.A., He's on a bit of a five-on-five goal-scoring drought, but, you know, he's somebody who comes up in big games for sure. And then your third line has really started to come alive in Calgary with Dubé, Yarncroke, and Coleman. Um, Dubé had eight goals in the final nine games of the season. Yarncroke went to the cup final a couple years ago, and Coleman won back-to-back Stanley Cups. Um, You know, what the Dallas Stars have in their middle six is J.D. Benn and Tyler Sagan, um, and a collection of depth players and who haven't been able to consistently offensively produce this season. So unless the Dallas, you know, second and third line can start to click at the right time in the postseason, then I think Calgary's depth, at least on paper. And I think the Flames can afford to have their top line get shut down if their second and third line produce. But I think if the Dallas top line gets shut down, they're going to struggle to score offensively unless something changes with, you know, Ben and Sagan and Gorionov. Hey, Haley, I really appreciate the info and the insights. Uh, Thanks for this today. Enjoy the series. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, There is Haley Salvian of The Athletic joining us here on on Canuck Central. And uh, we'll have more on that series, preview some of the other ones coming up just after the break fascinating storylines in that Calgary series given especially the the big offseason they have and the big questions they have with Johnny Gaudreau and Matthew Kachuk who yeah could take his qualifying offer and then just walk into free agency next Ooh, summer sat that'd be exciting that, that'd that, be fun that would be something it's not something most hockey players do but hey the Kachuks are just uh, a different breed as we know uh all right Don Taylor is next on Canuck Central. Final segment of Canuck Central as uh, we'll be sending you off to the Langley Event Center for 
Game six between the Giants and Everett Silvertips. What a series, by the way. Oh. What was the score Friday you like night? Gold? You like goals? The, the game was like 11-6 on Friday night. They scored five yeah, unanswered in the <laughs> third period. It was insane. Amazing, man. Uh, overrated, underrated. Junior hockey, I mean, always underrated. Uh, the product you can get out of junior hockey and entertainment. And uh, we'll have it here as the Giants look to become the first ever eight seed uh, to win against a one seed in the WHL playoffs. They need to close it out tonight, or they'd like to close it out tonight. They have two chances to do it, one here in game six, and of course, if needed, a game seven going back to Everett. But uh, the pregame is coming up after 6.30 here on uh, Canucks, uh, here on Sportsnet 650. So um, the Calgary Flames, uh, super interesting. You know, uh, when we talk about NHL awards and the ballot. I mean, you could have a Calgary flame for the Jack Adams, the Selkie, the Vesna, and potentially the Hart. <laughs> they could fill out almost every award ballot, Sat. Pretty much. And uh, that kind of tells you about the type of season you're having. When you go through every single thing, it's like, yeah, we got everybody. <laughs> it's almost like 2011 for Vancouver. Yeah. It was like pretty much everybody. It was Selkie. It was... Um, uh, Ryan Kessler, the Hart Trophy was uh, Henrik Sedin. No, Daniel Sedin that yeah. year. Um, and I mean the Vesna, yeah, they didn't. I, I guess Luongo wasn't quite didn't win the Vesna that year. Yeah. Um, but I think Elaine Vigneault was also up for the Coach of the Year that year. So I mean, you're, you're talking about um, that type of year where you're putting everything up. So what happens if you underachieve in the postseason off a year like that? So uh, obviously Johnny Gaudreau uh, would, would be a part of the heart discussion. Uh, who would you have as your heart trophy winner? Ooh. I think you know where I'm so, going because um, Austin Matthews should win it. You got Austin and, and that's not a bad pick for me. It's Connor, Connor McDavid. Wow. You know, I, we kind of touched on this last week. I don't think there's going to be too many ballots that have Connor McDavid at the top, even though, you know, he, he ran away with the scoring title. Usually when you do that, you're pretty much a lock for the Hart Trophy. Yeah, I mean, so what, he has 17 more points than Austin Matthews had. Yes, he played more games than Austin Matthews, but also kind of missed a couple and was kind of was rested a bit. But you take Austin Matthews out of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Do they still make the playoffs? Probably. Edmonton's not sniffing. You take <laughs> Connor McDavid out. And the type of year he had, and you can say that for a lot of teams, so that's not the, the only argument for Connor, but that's why, why I just go with him. Because, I mean, you look at Jonathan Uberdo and how great he's been, but you can make the case that Barkov's been the most valuable player. Yeah, And Goudreau, great argument for him as well. Kaprizov, I think he certainly deserves to be in that discussion. But I think we've just kind of we've forgotten how how important Connor McDavid is to that Edmonton Oilers team sometimes. I would have uh, Gaudreau actually second uh, on my ballot uh, for for the award, and uh, and then Connor McDavid to round it out. But Austin Matthews, his sixty goal season was just absolutely electric, and you know I think you know the one thing that's kind of interesting about the Leafs, like John Tavares, is not the player he once was, and so I think that left a little bit more heavy lifting for Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner to do, and especially Austin Matthews. I think his his game is, has really rounded out. He's an incredibly scary player right now, and uh, he's he's going to make all of the money when, uh, <laughs> when the uh, eventual unrestricted free agency comes around for him. We'll look at a couple of the other spots uh, in just a little bit, but let's get to our next guest. It is the legend. You hear him on Donnie and Dolly, 10 to noon, each and every day on Check TV. It's Don Taylor. What's happening, Donnie? A whole lot. You know, guys, I'm pretty sure, and thanks for having me on, I'm pretty sure this hockey thing is going to take off. <laughs> I, I think the sports, I think it's going to grow. Like the, the, this, this, the opening moments in Toronto were just, uh, you know, as much as everybody wants to rip in the, on the Leafs, including me, it's just spectacular. Just so so good. Same with Carolina, but I'm, I'm focused on the Leafs and Lightning right now. It's just really, really, really special. Doesn't it make you miss playoff hockey here in Vancouver? Uh, oh, I don't even want to think about it. It's just <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a while. And of course, 
you know, a typical Canuck fashion, the one, you know, you know, decent playoff run they've had is in front of nobody in Edmonton, uh, you know, since, since 2011. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty frustrating. No doubt about it. And you know what, Donnie? I'd actually say that as much as, yeah, the bubble, sure. And the last time we had, we saw fans in a building was 2015. But I'd say even that year, like, yeah, there was decent buzz. There's the playoffs. Yep. But given given the expectations after missing the playoffs a year before in a torch situation that kind of happened, and everybody kind of knew the team was in a bit of a transition. They, they kind of, you know, punched above their weight. They all talked about that that year. And I don't think yeah. the fans were completely on board with them being, you know, a contender. They lost to the San Jose Sharks in the first round the year before the torts year. And then the year before that yeah. was the, you know, the loss against the LA Kings in the Kings, first round. Yeah. So really, yeah. as far as excitement in the postseason, we got to go back almost 10 years here, Donnie. No, you're right. You kind of knew in 2015 that it wasn't real. You just yeah. you just got that feeling. You know, they dropped the first game. If I'm if I've got that right, you just kind of knew that it wasn't going to happen. It was like, oh yeah, you know what? Maybe that was kind of a mirage. And I know it was a 101 point team, but time proved it was it it, it wasn't reality. It might have been the worst thing that happened to the Jim Benning era. Yeah, it's been it's been a really long time. We just completely forgotten and you know you think about a big game that the that the Canucks have played since since 2012 if you don't include 20, 2015 or even a big regular season game this year was good it was good not I wouldn't say great in terms of you know important games but when everybody talks about oh what was the last really important game at, at Rogers Arena in the last significant amount of time the game everybody brings up is the Sedin's final game which you know from their standings point of view meant nothing and that's been it. There just hasn't been much. Uh, again, other than the bubble run where nothing happened in Vancouver. It's frustrating. The most memorable game in, at Rogers Arena in, what, that many years is a game against the Arizona Coyotes. Who would have thought? Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> that sums it up right there. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it, it is crazy. And, you know, there's a lot of different thoughts that you have uh, coming out of every season, but... Now, Bruce Boudreaux, we heard him speak today, and you know it does look like it's trending in the right direction, Donnie, towards uh, the relationship continuing. Certainly, Boudreaux seems to think, or it sounded like he expects it to continue, and, and why wouldn't it, as we've talked about earlier in the show? But he also said something that was interesting in that you know we're just a couple of tweaks away from being a very dangerous team. Do you agree with him on that? Well, it's hard not to agree, given the record. And look, I'll go back to our earlier conversation. Forget dangerous. People just want to see a team in the playoffs. If they make the plays, what's your definition of dangerous? I guess it means a team that can, you know, score goals, um, do something, maybe do something in the playoffs, just get into the playoffs. If you know, and it just, I just wonder. You know, Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford are really, really smart people. Uh, that's the impression that I get. And, you know, the record certainly is there, certainly is with, with, with Jim. And I, I just wonder what, what they're thinking, given what they must have been thinking at the start of all this. Must have been thinking, they must have been thinking rebuild. I was, a lot of people were. And then all of a sudden, Boudreaux starts weaving his magic and it's like, oh, they, they missed the playoffs by five points. Games are interesting in March and April. And, I, and I'm wondering if they might be thinking the same thing as Boudreaux. Are they thinking, hey, maybe just a couple of players and we could do something? It's going to be really, really interesting. But I, I wonder what their focus was at the beginning versus what it, what it is right now. What's their plan? We're going to find out tomorrow, Absolutely. maybe. Well, we, we might, yeah, I mean, and the, you know, the, the thing is, they haven't told us specifics, but they have been honest, and everything they've said they would do, they have done to this point. We want to clear some cap space. They've done a little bit of that. They won't let yeah. free agents walk for nothing. They did that with Tyler Maud. And so it's, so we'll take them at their word, but they're not telling us specifics. So you're right. I, I am intrigued to hear what they have to say tomorrow. But also, as much as a lot of it comes down to what they want to do, but a lot of it also comes down to what do the players on their team want to do with their contract yeah. negotiations yeah. because a lot of this isn't up to them. I mean, what does JT want for his extension? What does Bo want? What, what do you do with Brock Besser here? So even before you start delving into what it would take to improve this team, the first job you got to figure out is who's, who are you able to bring back? Who can you sign? 
Well, and that's just it. Like everybody talks about what are the Canucks going to do? What do they want to do? And yeah, okay, that that's valid. But you're right. Like maybe I mean Horvat has dropped hints that he's really frustrated with not being uh, part of a team that makes the playoffs on a regular basis, or the or a team that makes the playoffs, you know, at, at all, other than again the 2020 bubble and the 2015 blip. There's that. JT Miller, you know, is uh, saying all the right things, but you really don't know. And that's why I think that, you know, I, I wonder if it, how much the start of next season, the first few months maybe of next season are going to play into their decisions. If they, if, if they can't win, you know, does Bo want to stick around long-term and, and continue playing with, with an organization that just doesn't seem to have any ability to make the playoffs or play important games. And same thing with JT Miller. You know, here's nothing that, another thing that think about JT Miller. I know Tampa's having trouble today. They're down four nothing now to Toronto and, and all that. I wonder how much it bothers him that, and, and he'd never say so publicly, but that Tampa reeled off two Stanley Cup titles without him. I mean, how good was that team when he was there and they they couldn't win? That does, does that bother him? Does he want to go to an organization that is closer to the Cup than the Canucks are? You're right. It's not just it's not just about what the Canucks can do or want to do. It's up to those players too. If they're unrestricted free agents, they can go anywhere. Don Taylor, our guest. You know, JT Miller becomes right in the uh, the crosshairs of what what goes on this offseason. Because yeah, yeah, okay, I can talk myself into the Canucks being a couple of moves, couple of tweaks away, but. That also probably assumes JT Miller is is with this team next year. Probably the the biggest the the first piece of business Patrick and and Jim Rutherford have to figure out. Donnie is what do those contracts look like for JT Miller and Bo Horvat? At least have a sense of what they look like. Yeah, and then throw in Brock Besser. Um, yeah. And certainly after after yesterday, there's I think more people want to keep him now than maybe they did 48 hours ago. Um, like how do you how do you keep all three of those players? I just don't. I, I I'm not really sure. And and how do you keep all three of those players and improve your blue line, which they have to do? The right side needs improving. So how do you do that and keep all somebody? Somebody has to go. You would think. Um, I mean, the cap is going to go up this year by a million. Who knows next year? I'm guessing some somebody has to go. Uh, and again, if you want to improve your team, where you have to improve it, and that's certainly, I think, first and foremost, the blue line. Well, and Donnie, you guys, you and Dolly on, on Check TV today had Ben Hankinson on, who's yep. the agent yep. for Brock Besser. And, you know, he kind of talked about how, you know, Brock wasn't upset about the question and felt it was actually good that he was able to get that off his chest to some degree and all those sort of things, which is nice to hear yep. because, you know, it was obviously, you know, jarring seeing that moment and everything. But the yep. other part of it, too, and considering how motivated he is to get a contract done and everything, but also how much of a bounce back can we expect from him? next season you know hey life isn't easy there's going to be ups and downs but obviously some years are tougher than others so maybe a lot of his struggles can be explained to some degree so if we're if we're trying to bank on him bouncing back next season based on everything that's happened this year does that seem like a relatively safe bet if he's healthy yeah if he's healthy and he's in the proper state of mind and you know uh, god bless him i'm not sure exactly you know what that means i I guess maybe maybe there's some Hope for Brock um, in looking at the guy to the left of him at the press conference yesterday, and that's Elias Pedersen. I think he may have surprised a few people anyway, saying the poor start to his season was more about his state of mind, missing training camp, the contract negotiations, not being sure if he was completely wanted and all that versus the wrist. So he he felt that his state of mind had more to do with his slow start uh, versus health. And then he picked it up when we saw what we saw in the, the last half of the season. So if, if Brock can get into the right state of mind, he's still got 23 goals, but if he can get into the right state of mind, and again, I'm not sure what that entails with his personal situation. Um, you know, maybe that bodes better for him on the ice. So I, I guess I'm uh, assuming your, your shopping list for Canucks would be uh, a top four defenseman. This yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think every, and easier said than done, right? And, yeah. and maybe that's where you know not keeping one of uh, Horvat, Miller, and, and Besser come in. 
And um, I mean, t- also today we had Patrick Johnson on. We we talked about uh, you know the possibility of trading Tyler Myers, and that that's fine. I get that big ticket, two years left. Uh, it, it was used a lot by Travis Green. Same thing with Bruce uh, Boudreaux. But he's, they don't have any depth on that right side. Very, then remember they got rid of Hamannick as well. I shouldn't say got rid of, but they 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 traded him. And so there's not a lot there. So it's just a a lot of thinking to do when it comes to comes to the blue line. And you know, you look at Rathbone as as you know, arguably, I don't know if it's arguably their number one, uh, their number one prospect, and he's a left-handed defenseman. Um, So that 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 definitely needs improving. And uh, I'm not so sure that means getting rid of Tyler Myers. I think it means getting rid of a forward and improving your blue line that way. Yeah, and you know it is going to be interesting from that point too. Like, what type of moves do you make to improve the team or not? But as far as optimism for next season, Vasily mm. Podkolzin, how different of an opinion do you have on what he can do, say next year, as opposed to what we kind of thought about him after the first couple of months of the season? Yeah, well, I think you know this is off the ice, but just the way he handled himself. You know, speaking um, a second language last week, it was fun. It was he's smart. He just seems to really enjoy, really enjoy the the community, the, a new country. He's adventurous, and he kind of uh, he takes that onto the ice. Onto the ice. I think the number one thing for me is the way he drove the net. He drove the net. He was fearless in in the last little bit of the season, and he's he was putting up uh, points as well. And you know, didn't look out of place. Top six in important games. <clears throat> I just, I, I think you know. And again, you know, we've been fooled before. You know, you know, Hoaglander top six uh, look good. No, I hope we all, all hope you're a Canuck fan that he can bounce back. But uh, there, there's something about put Coles, and he has a sturdiness to his game. You know, an intelligence to his game. I, I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna. He's gonna take off from here. Before we let you go, Donnie, do you have a cup pick? Well, I, I, I'll, I'll stick with what I've been saying all along. And I often go, the late, great Bob McCammon told me, you know, go, you know, if you're making predictions, you, you, you media dummy, I think he called me, Bob was, uh, he loved us uh, a lot. <laughs> I don't think he called me that, but something like that. And I was always a big fan of, of Bob's. You go with the team with the best defensive record. And uh, as a result, I'll stick with what I, and you can call me crazy, but I'll go with Carolina. Uh, all right. It's an interesting pick. They're off to a decent start so far yeah, tonight. There you go. There you go. Uh, Donnie, really appreciate the time as always. We'll talk next week. You bet, guys. Anytime. Lots of fun. Uh, there is uh, Don Taylor joining us here on uh, Canucks Central. That'll uh, get us right into uh, a quick thought on uh, the series that will begin tomorrow, Sats. As, yeah, you've got four starting tonight and another four starting tomorrow bet on hockey like never before with play now sports your local bc sportsbook so when we start to take a look at some of the series for beyond tonight sat you know a lot of intrigue you know starting with the pittsburgh penguins and the new york rangers tomorrow it's pretty much dead even over at BCLC and playnow.com, both teams at 190 to win the series. Is it as even as the numbers suggest for you? Um, so I, I would say that it's probably not as even. I'd say the Penguins should be more favored than that. I, I'm really surprised at how much buzz there is around the Rangers. Like, I'm not quite as bullish on them as a lot of people are. So I would kind of would have. Uh, the the Penguins as being the the betting favorites that that would be my line so I kind of like you know I, I kind of like the value there as, as being a pick'em for the series I you know I kind of was hoping you'd, you'd get plus money uh, on uh, on the Penguins here uh, just the idea of getting uh, Sidney Crosby and and the trio the big three Crosby Malkin and and Latang maybe their last run has been talked about but uh, not going to happen at least not yet. I think the one thing for the Rangers here is obviously goaltending, and no Tristan Jari yeah. for the uh, for the Penguins does make it a little bit more dicey, uh, given 
that the Rangers do have some some really elite scorers. And if you're not on top of it, you know, Penguins goaltending essentially is what you know, lost them the series against the New York Islanders last year. So could it be the story again this year against the New York Rangers? Uh, moving forward, the Florida Panthers will be up against the Washington Capitals. I believe the Panthers are the biggest favorite of any team, uh, maybe outside of Colorado, which we'll get to in a moment here. 127 to lay on the Florida Panthers. I just, you know, I, I don't see a lot of ways that Washington can win this series, Sat. They're just, they can't score better than Florida. I don't think they defend better than Florida, and Florida's better in net. They're just, Washington has beaten all three levels of the game here. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Capitals, to me, I'd love to see it. Like, I would love to see the Capitals and Ovechkin make a deep run this year. The matchup's not good enough. It just isn't. I mean, if the Caps at least had the goaltending advantage in a big way, I'd be like, okay, you know what? The Capitals have that going for them. And the Panthers' goaltending can be shaky at times. But they don't even have that going for them. I, I just don't – I'm with you. I just don't see a way where it's realistic to – to take the Capitals win this series. I'd love to see it because I'd rather see OV go a little bit longer another ch- chance at it with some of these other guys in that team. Like I'd love to see it. I'm just not quite, I don't have the confidence in, in that group right now, especially against in that matchup against Florida. Uh, of course, uh, just mentioned Colorado. They are really heavy favorites uh, to win the series over the Nashville Predators who will not have UC Soros for the entirety of that series. So Colorado are... 114 on the money line. So you're paying a lot of juice to lay a series bet on the Colorado Avalanche. I would suggest going and and looking at some of their totals game to game uh, if you like the Avalanche because they may be the highest scoring team of the first round of these playoffs. And finally, the Calgary Flames and Dallas Stars. Calgary also a pretty heavy favorite here. 133. Calgary's going to have to overcome some of their playoff demons. And the thing about this series is, as much as I expect Calgary to win, Sat, Dallas is a team that can really frustrate you. And that's that's the thing that Calgary's going to have to fight against the most. Yeah, and you know, I, I still pick Calgary to win this series, but I don't think it's going to be a cakewalk. And Dallas does pose some problems, especially with how they play. And if they're able to kind of bottle that up and all of a sudden approach the playoffs as a new season and they buy into that team game again they're a really hard team to beat i don't see them going far but they're totally a type of team that can upset a a a contender in the first round they have enough there to be able to pull that off their goaltending has been a bit shaky down the stretch here and we'll see if that can kind of solidify itself because they'll need that against calgary but just the way they play and the way miro heiskanen can roll Mm -hmm. you know like i just don't bet against that guy very often he he's a guy who can kind of control the pace of a series, right? Yeah. Um, he he showed it. He showed it a couple of years ago. He's the best defenseman on either team. Uh, it's not particularly close. All due respect to to what the Flames have, they've got great depth on defense. But Heiskanen uh, is the player that's not being talked about enough going into that series between Calgary and Dallas. Bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. Uh, coming up the. Pre-game show for the Vancouver Giants and the Everett Silver Tips. Giants looking to close this series out. They lead it 3-2 and looking to become the first eight seed to beat a one seed in the WHL playoffs. The pregame is coming up on Sportsnet 650. For producers Justin Morissette and Josh Elliott-Wolf, my co-host Satyar Shah, I'm Dan Richo. You're listening to Sportsnet 650.